You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone. My name is Susanne Kalutsa, and I'm the CEO here at the House of Literature. And it's my great honor to introduce tonight's guest, Andrei Kurkov. We have just entered the fifth week in Russia's unprovoked war against Ukraine, and every new cycle reports new tragedies and new devastation. In Russia, independent media and journalists are closed down or fleeing the country, whereas in Ukraine, the ongoing war has forced both foreign press and national voices to leave. How do you fight for freedom of speech under such conditions? One of the brave voices doing just that is tonight's guest of honor, Mr. Andrei Kurkov. He has taken a clear stand against Russia's invasion war and for Ukrainian independence, and he's using his voice to tell Ukraine's story to the rest of the world. So when we, together with Samtid magazine, saw the opportunity to invite Kurkov here, we didn't hesitate. As the leader of Pen Ukraine, Mr. Kurkov is also fighting for freedom of speech and for the safety of his colleagues. I think most Ukrainian writers are on the blacklist in Russia, he told media earlier this month. What are the conditions for Ukraine's writers, journalists, and intellectuals now? To aid Kirkov in this important work, I'm happy to say that all proceeds from tonight's event will go directly to Penn Ukraine. Kirkov is one of Ukraine's most central and lauded writers of today, having published close to 30 books for adults and children, among them Death and the Penguin and Grey Bees. He has been translated into more than 30 languages. We are so honored to give the stage to Mr. Kirkov tonight. Please give him a warm welcome. Thank you. Uh, good evening. I, I, I don't feel like standing like a professor and uh, giving a proper lecture. Uh, although, I mean, I want to give a proper talk uh, because uh, otherwise I wouldn't come here. And, and I mean, this is my duty to share information and to talk about Ukraine and talk about Russia also in order for you and representatives of other countries to understand what is going on, what was going on and why do we have the war like this the war of 20th century in Europe of 21st century. I'm very happy that I have hand-free microphone. It's very easy to have hands-free. It's not so easy to have head-free. And uh, and this is actually uh, pushes me to, to the past to say a few words about the Soviet times because I'm 60 years old and my life is very easily dividable into two. 30 years period. I spent 30 years in the Soviet Union and 30 years uh, after death of the Soviet Union in independent Ukraine. And very often I am comparing what was happening then and what was happening after 1991 and when I was happy, was, when I was unhappy, when I was free uh, easily and when I had to pay for this. And I should say, I mean, I had to pay for, for this in the Soviet time and in the post-Soviet time because you cannot actually turn the country completely free and make people free uh, once the country changes the name and changes uh, loyalties and principles and declares itself democratic. 
And uh, uh, in the beginning of the 90s, I thought that I was much more free in the Soviet times because I was growing uh, in 1970s and 80s. I was born in 1961. Uh, I was born in Russia. I'm ethnic Russian, one of seven million probably ethnic Russians in Ukraine. I speak uh, both languages. I write fiction in Russian, and I started writing not so long ago uh, nonfiction in Ukrainian uh, as a political gesture. I'm not alone. Actually, there are writers in Ukraine who were writing previously in Russian, and then they switched into Ukrainian because Ukrainian was coming back. And this is a long story because uh, Ukrainian language was banned 40 times by, by Russian Tsars. There are 40 decrees signed. One of the decree, uh, I think Alexander II, he signed in uh, Badems, in the spa town uh, in Germany. Uh, I think it is baden Württemberg, uh, where he, he, actually he signed it in the casino. And uh, on this casino until today, uh, there is a plaque uh, saying that here Alexander II signed the so-called Badems uh, decree about banning Ukrainian language. So, I mean, the Russian Empire uh, was an incredibly unfree country and it could exist only without freedom of people, which is repeated today because I'm sure you are following uh, the history of Russia, and you know the history of Russia without knowing that Ukraine has its own history, and I will be talking about this too. But what is incredible that the Russian language and Russian empire was used to impose a Russian imperial mentality, collective mentality, monarchic mentality, because the difference between two mentalities is huge. Ukrainians in 17th, 16th, 15th centuries, they were free. They lived on their independent territory, which you can call a state or you can call just independent territory because they were anarchists. They were organized anarchists. They were fighting on all borders. They were fighting with Poles, uh, against uh, Russians, with Turk Crimean Tatars, against Poles, etc. But they invented elections of their military leader who was called Getman. And apart from the military leader, they were electing also higher officers. And once uh, the leader was elected, they would uh, already plot against him because they, uh, I mean, Ukraine is a country of individualists and was always. So, I mean, the, the matrix of uh, this organized anarchy uh, appeared because uh, Ukrainians never had royal family and not, never had aristocracy. And everyone was uh, sure that he is right and he knows what to do. <laughs> and we have the same situation now because in Ukraine, uh, I think probably it should be included in the Guinness Book of Records, we have more than 400 political parties registered in the Ministry of Justice. Most of them have nothing to do with ideology at all. It's just if one Ukrainian decides to go into politics, he looks around, he doesn't like any of the political parties because each one has charismatic leader who created this party for himself. And so Ukrainian starts registering his own party. And then actually, uh, once party registered and he made all his friends members of this party, he understands that actually the party is not functioning. He doesn't have money to promote this party. He doesn't have money to take part actively in the elections, and the party is frozen or dreaming or sleeping, and then somebody comes up and says, well, I want to participate in the next elections, but according to the Ukrainian law, if you register the party, you have to wait one year before you can uh, take part in the elections. <coughs> and so what Ukrainians would do? 
they would buy a party which already exists. And I can, I can teach you, I can help you to buy a party in Ukraine if you want. Yeah, usually, I mean, before they were, it was very cheap, now probably even cheaper. Because what you do, that you agree with the uh, leader of this party, which practically doesn't exist, that uh, he gives you, the, uh, he organizes the general meeting of the party, during which uh, the buyer of the party becomes the owner of the party, becomes the leader of the party. According to the protocol, etc., all the papers registered then in the Ministry of Justice, you can change the name of the party, and you can be proud politician. I mean, we don't have many proud politicians in Ukraine, <laughs> I should say. But uh, I want to go back uh, to 17th century and 16th century because that was the uh, time when Ukrainian mentality was shaped. Ukrainians, uh, apart from elections of Getman and officers, they created diplomatic service. And they were uh, corresponding with Sultan, Turkish Sultan. And there is a famous uh, painting where uh, half-dressed and half-sober Ukrainian Cossacks are writing letters to Turkish Sultan. Uh, obviously, uh, from this painting, you understand that they wanted to upset him. In fact, actually, in Istanbul archives, you can find real correspondence between uh, Gatemans of Ukraine and uh, Sultans of Turkey. So, I mean, this diplomatic service existed, and it was also a sign of the statehood. There was a legal system. There were courts, and they were also used by the people in power to punish their enemies, which we have also now in Ukraine. But I hope one day it will disappear because Ukraine has, a prob has problems, but uh, slowly deals with the problems, and the new generation of Ukrainians who were born in the end of the Soviet power or after the collapse of the Soviet Union, I mean, they are already completely Europeans. They don't give bribes. They don't, don't take bribes. They, they want to do everything according to the law, because in Cossack's tradition was not to respect those gatemans whom you elect, not to, exp uh, not to respect the rules, but at the same time, to be tolerant to other Cossacks who have all very, very strong opinion about everything. So that, that's why, actually, uh, there were no problems inside uh, the territory. Uh, there were always problems only with Catholics, Poles, uh, with Russians, and with, uh, with Crimean Tatars and Turks. What they didn't do in the 16th century, uh, Ukrainians didn't invent their own currency. They were paying each other with Turkish silver, Polish gold, Lithuanian coins, etc. And this is very interesting because it shows that they were engaged in the war all the time. And when you are engaged in the war all the time, you cannot really uh, build a proper state. But uh, still, uh, in 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed and ruble uh, became nothing, uh, Ukrainians started using German marks and dollars very easily, like, uh, like they were using silver, uh, Turkish silver 300 years ago. And it was uh, going on probably for five years until the economical situation uh, stabilized. And then Ukrainians invented or reinvented their currency because the currency, which is called Grivna, was uh, invented and produced in 1918 when Ukraine was independent for several months. And this is another, I mean, uh, there are three wonderful books about Ukrainian history published internationally in many languages. I'm not sure they're available in Norwegian, but you all read in English. Probably more than 
people in England read. Uh, and I, I can name you uh, these books now, and I will name them again in the evening. This is Timothy Snyder, American historian, excellent writer. Uh, the book is called Bloodlands. And Appleboy, uh, Red Hunger. And less known but very good book by Canadian professor Sergei Plochy, The Gates of Europe. Because uh, now, uh, after the beginning of the war, and maybe for some of you, even before, in 2014, uh, you noticed Ukraine, you follow what is happening with Ukraine, you know the name of the country, and it became a brand, but, uh, but you don't know the history, you don't know the difference between Ukraine, you don't know what was happening in the last 30 years, and uh, what was happening was incredible, because the speed of life was three, four times faster than in any other country uh, in Europe. And this is also be, not because Ukrainians are hysterical or I, they, they, because the processes, geopolitical processes, social processes in Ukraine, they, they were like going out of control and uh, coming back to Russian language and imposing of collective mentality. I want to say that actually this was the dream of Vladimir Lenin, whom you know, to create society with no cultural and ethnic roots, without different minorities, all people will be or would be Soviet people without background, and it would be easy to control them because if you have somebody with Uzbek background, cultural background, and somebody with Ukrainian, then you have to control them so that they would be more Soviet than Uzbek, more Soviet than Ukrainians. And Ukrainians, because they were individualists, they didn't want really to play the game Bolsheviks were imposing. So when collectivization started, Ukrainians didn't want to join collective farms. They didn't want to give their cows. They were very good farmers. And as a result, uh, the first punishment came from Moscow. 300,000 Ukrainian farmers were deported to Siberia. And the poorest farmers or the poorest peasants were turned into communists and they were given right to punish everybody else. And this was the principle of Lenin, the principle of October Revolution. So people who don't have anything, who didn't work, who didn't earn, they were allowed to rob the rich ones and successful ones. And so the country actually suddenly became 20% uh, smaller in the size of population. And all elite went to France and uh, to Shanghai and to other places and People of Paris were extremely happy because they were, could take taxi and they would be driven by a count or a prince as a chauffeur. Yeah, these were interesting times and there are lots of books uh, published about this. But after deportation of these Ukrainians and during deportation, tens of thousands of people died because they were deported during winter and they were brought to the forests and places with no infrastructure, and they had to build houses to spend the winter. And it was second punishment for them. And then we had uh, a hunger in Volga region, and there was not enough crop in Ukraine or in other places. So the communists, including Ukrainian communists, decided to take all the food, all the wheat from Ukrainian peasants and send it to Volga region. The result was 7 million approximately dead Ukrainians from hunger. And we don't know anything about actually how this food was transported. There was a special food army created from the Red Army. 
And this were actually the soldiers who were checking uh, every courtyard, every farm, every house, and they were finding even small bags with wheat hidden somewhere. And of course, I mean, you cannot forget it because this was also the beginning of the uh, horrible two years period when cannibalism developed in Ukraine, when people went crazy and they were killing and eating neighbors' children. And I, I saw the criminal cases because, I mean, there were criminal cases, but it was not allowed to talk about this. When I was a, a schoolboy or even a student, I have never heard about uh, this hunger. I have never heard about deportations. And I, in fact, actually, sort of, I was always anti-Soviet. I was making jokes. My brother, who is seven years older than me, he was a real dissident. His friends were arrested. Uh, one of his friends died in detention, apparently from heart attack. And he knew probably more, but I was too young. I was seven years younger. And uh, I realized that something was wrong only in 1980 when my grandfather, who was a Stalinist, died. And I found out that his two brothers were arrested in 1937 and sent to Gulag. And they were both good communists, communist leader on local level. And then I started actually traveling uh, in Brezhnev's time. It was the end of Brezhnev's time because he would die in 82, I think, or maybe 83, but... But I was traveling by hitchhiking, river hiking. I was traveling around Soviet Union with a big dictation machine that was given to me by an American professor who came to our university to teach English. And I was pretending that I'm actually a student of journalism, not a student of foreign languages. And I was trying to find important retired people who were working, uh, occupying important positions in the past. And very quickly I understood that only those who were uh, in love with Stalinism and then punished by Khrushchev only those were ready to talk and to say the truth. Everybody who had a good career, they were saying that they had lovely life, everything was okay. There were no people in Gulag, everything is lie, etc. But I found a lot of people actually who talked to me and one of them even ended up in one of my books. Uh, there is a trilogy about evolution of Soviet mentality from 1918 to 1974. The book is called uh, the Geography of a Single Gunshot. It exists in Italian translation and German translations, and for English, it is too big. It is three volumes. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, I made this uh, person whose name was Alexander Petrovich Smurov. I made him a character in the book because I, just, I, I, I remember him like I talked to him yesterday. When I found him, he was, in fact, uh, a nightkeeper of the parking lot of the police sanatorium in Crimea. He lived in a small booth together with a big lady. Uh, he was 80 plus. She was 79, 78. She was an ex-military pilot. She had a very specific sense of humor. Uh, and uh, I probably I wouldn't pay attention to them, but uh, when I talked to him and I thought that he couldn't be anybody interesting, but he said that he was uh, a member of special uh, group in, from 1937, uh, 36 which was a, a group of prosecutors which was uh, signing the death sentences uh, without actually investigations. And, uh, and then I started actually talking to him, and he was friendly. He was extremely friendly. He was, talking, he was mixing in his stories uh, his personal life with his professional life. And the first thing he said to me that as a young man, he decided that his wife will bear the name Nadezhda, which means hope. 
and he married, he found a girl with the name Nadezhda, he married her, uh, they lived some years together, then something happened, she disappeared, uh, he was upset, he found another Nadezhda, he married uh, Nadezhda number two, uh, they lived together also seven or eight years, then something happened, and then he found third Nadezhda because obviously subconsciously he was orthodox, and the orthodoxy is based on the trinity. All good things come in three. So he had three Nadezhdas, and after uh, third Nadezhda left him, he decided to give up. And this lady who was living with him at that time was called Galina. But this was his sort of passionate story. Uh, and, uh, I mean, the other stories were also passionate, because uh, he told me that he was in western Ukraine and in Bessarabia and Bukovina after Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. And uh, after this pact, people were still crossing the border, new borders uh, from uh, Romania, from Poland, into new Ukraine, part of new Ukraine or Moldova, and then backwards. And uh, these groups, actually, were soldiers who were catching everybody who crosses the border. And they were accused of spying. And he was telling me that they arrested a gypsy girl, a very beautiful gypsy girl, uh, and he signed the death sentence for her because she, was, she couldn't be not a spy. And it was uh, told in such a light way, and I sort of asked him how many papers like this he signed, and he said, well, I don't remember, but I mean, of course, hundreds, of course, hundreds, because he was there uh, for uh, two years before the war, and uh, after the war, he was made a prosecutor of Donbass region, but there, actually, he had uh, different stories to tell, so he was not signing any death sentences there. But he was proud of uh, one of his acts, uh, because when he first came to, to this mining district region, he found out uh, that uh, in one of the mines, uh, still the uh, horses are used to, to pull the trolleys with coal. And he said that he loved animals, and he thought this is abominable, that in the Soviet Union, the animals are exploited under, under the uh, underground. And he said that he uh, just decided and forced the uh, administration of this mine to take him up and sort of to put them somewhere in, uh, on the surface, these uh, horses. And then he went on holiday, and when he back, came back from holiday, I mean, this is real life and at the same time literature, because when he got back from holiday and he asked, uh, uh, did you uh, sort of free the horses from the underground tunnels? And he was told, yes, yes, we, 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 we brought them up, uh, but they were blind because they, they spent so much time in the darkness. So they were sent to the sausage factory. And I mean... Uh, I just I wonder now uh, how uh, free he uh, felt himself because I mean freedom didn't exist and wasn't important in the Soviet time for people who were making career either in the Communist Party or anywhere else. I mean if you are involved in this nomenclature, if you are part of the structure, you cannot be free. You are functioning according to the instructions. So who were free? Writers were free. Well, if writers were trying to be free. Uh, it would be immediately noticed. And Ukraine has a very sad history with writers because uh, 
uh, in 1920s, 1930s, there was a huge, new, powerful, young generation of experimental poets, uh, playwrights, and uh, prosa writers. And uh, at that time, the capital of Ukraine was not Kyiv. The capital of Ukraine was Kharkiv. Kharkiv was completely Ukrainian-speaking city. Today it is 99% Russian-speaking city. But uh, in the Soviet Union, uh, in order to control different types of people, they were building huge houses where they would put all writers, all academicians, all composers. And there is a famous house, block of flats in Kharkiv, which is called Slova, the word. You can find a documentary on YouTube. It's very interesting. And all these young writers with their families were put, were given this free accommodation. And they were happy. They were visiting each other, drinking, writing, reading to each other. And uh, over two months, 80% of them were arrested and sent to Solovki camp in the northern Russia. And there they were all shot dead. And uh, I didn't know the names of these dozens and dozens of writers when I was studying literature, was I, when I was interested, because they were banned in the Soviet Union. They were never mentioned. Only after, after 1991, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Ukrainian intellectuals started pulling them up and showing what was happening with Ukrainian literature, with Ukrainian science, with Ukrainian uh, uh, music, etc. And uh, now there is uh, this phenomena, uh, it's called uh, executed resurrection or killed resurrection, because they were trying to resurrect Ukrainian literature. It was not the first attempt, but they failed because they were noticed, they were uh, isolated and exterminated. And this is part of Ukrainian history which is not very much liked uh, in Russia, because uh, in Russia they say there was no uh, artificial hunger in Ukraine. Uh, there are no uh, exterminated sort of writers. They were not writers. They were probably uh, enemies of people, just like anybody who was killed in the Gulag. And uh, now, actually, I mean, now, now even there is no discussion with Russia because Russia is using different means uh, to try to exterminate, to destroy Ukraine. Why? Because, uh, again, 20 years ago, the difference or the border between two mentalities, because from 1991... Ukrainian language was coming back with Ukrainian individualistic mentality, and you could see where this mentality is already the main mentality. In these places, there would be much more private entrepreneurs and small businesses than in the places with uh, collective mentality, which was mostly uh, to find in the industrial cities with big factories, big plants, etc. So in Donbass, for example, if you were a businessman, a small businessman, even very small businessman, in 1990s, in the end of 90s, it would mean that you have a protection either of your relatives who are functionaries or who are friends or relatives of important people, or that you agreed with local mafia oligarchs who, are, who were protecting the businesses they, that they allowed to, to be opened. And this border with every year actually was moving towards east. So, I mean, uh, promotion of Ukrainian language was at the same time promotion of Ukrainian individualistic mentality. I am not giving, sort of, not judging this mentality, is it excellent or is it very bad? I mean, any mentality has a right to exist. There are always positive and negative th things to, to, to each traditional or 
fixed mentality. <laughs> but anyway, it was coming back because uh, when a country with a very strong and strict structure disappears, and like Soviet Union disappeared. So what people are doing, I mean, suddenly they understand that the life changed, that they cannot live the way they lived, and now uh, they need some kind of rules. If nobody offers them rules, they start behaving, maybe even subconsciously, just like their ancestors behaved before this new structure disappeared, sort of the previous structure. For Russians, for Soviets, the previous structure was Russian Empire. For new Russians, the previous structure is Soviet Union. And for Ukrainians, actually, uh, Russian Empire was foreign, but uh, it was okay, it was bearable. But the main uh, basic sort of uh, matrix was this Cossacks times, when they, are, when they were free. And, and that's why for Ukrainians today, also freedom is more important than stability and money. For Russians in Russia, stability and quality of life is more important than freedom. They know, I mean, I, I was surprised that when the war started, there were only six people uh, protesting in Moscow. Later there were more, but in, in the beginning, the first reaction was six single pickets, which were arrested and taken away immediately. And then I thought, well, why in the Soviet Union, the dissidents and people who didn't like the Soviet system, they were not afraid to protest even when they were really imprisoned and sent to Siberia and had to spend 15 years or more in, in prisons, or some of them. I mean, like the last Ukrainian poet who died in the Soviet prison was Vasil Stus, who was born in Donetsk and who died in 1987 in labor camp in Siberia in the time when Gorbachev was talking about perestroika and glasnost. At that time, there were no Russian-speaking uh, writers or poets in, in camps. But this is not, not for me to analyze because maybe I don't know everything. But anyway, uh, this border between two mentalities, with every year was moving towards Russia, towards border with Russia. And if there were no war, no annexation of Crimea, uh, no Putin, in 30 years, probably, the border with Russia would be border also between two different mentalities. Putin changed recently three, different, uh, three times his statements about Ukrainian people. His main statement uh, for last years was that uh, Russians and Ukrainians are brotherly folks, bro brotherly nations. Then uh, before the war, like several months before the war, he was saying that Russians and Ukrainians are the same nation. There is one more phrase which was very often repeated uh, in uh, Russia on TV, especially and by politicians, which made Ukrainians very, uh, not afraid, but very cautious uh, with Russia. The phrase uh, sounded like, Russia ends where nobody speaks Russian, which means Russia never ends. Because in Israel, there are several millions Russian speakers. In California, there are lots of Russian speakers. Berlin is, Charlottenburg speaks Russian etc. Uh, in Kirkenes, uh, I think there are 800 uh, Russian speakers, uh, the wives of Norwegian uh, seamen and fishermen. I was there and I, I, I was amazed. I mean, the, it is an incredible small town with very interesting history and, uh, and reality. But anyway, the last statement of Putin was that 
Ukraine shouldn't exist. And Ukrainians uh, have no right to have their own uh, country. Uh, why he was changing this? I mean, he said also just before the war that Ukraine was invented by Lenin. Before that, he was saying that uh, Ukraine was invented by uh, Habsburg Empire. And uh, I think there is more uh, truth in the <laughs> invention by Austrians, although it is of course not true because uh, there were no Austrians on Ukrainian territory in 16th century after Lithuanian Kingdom and after Polish Lithuanian Kingdom. And this western part of Ukraine belonged to Lithuanian Kingdom and Ukrainians don't have any bitter memories because Lithuanians never banned language, never interfered with culture. So Ukrainians lived just like they wanted to live. In Austrian-Hungarian Empire it was slightly different, but it was still bearable. But in the Soviet Empire and with Russian Empire, uh, Ukrainian language was provoking, actually, uh, Russian aristocracy and Russian police uh, to be quite aggressive towards anybody who speaks Ukrainian. And, of course, Russification of the 1920s and 30s and 40s and 50s and later uh, meant that everybody who wanted to earn money and to survive had to switch uh, language, had to become a Russian speaker. But uh, I hope I repeated it enough for you to remember. I am myself Russian speaker, and I have and had many problems because of Putin, not because of Ukrainian nationalists with whom I am discussing the issue of languages starting from 1991. I am discussing Russian in Ukrainian with them, because my Ukrainian sometimes is better than the Ukrainian of Ukrainian nationalists. Because I am linguist, because I was working in the Soviet time in the Ukrainian publishing house, and I was editing the translations from foreign languages into Ukrainian. And even then, on the table of every editor, there would be six volumes of dictionary, Ukrainian language dictionary, uh, including dialect words. I mean, if you have six volumes of dictionary uh, of one language, it means that the language exists. Yes? <laughs> would you agree with this? And I was told that actually recently there was an event dedicated to Ukraine somewhere in Norway, and one Russian lady who lives here, she shouted that Ukrainian language doesn't exist. I mean, there are many Russians, most Russians, I think they believe that Ukrainian language is a proper language, and the difference between Ukrainian language and Russian language is just like between German and Dutch. All Ukrainians understand everything in Russian. And actually, young Ukrainians, they like Russian rap, and they watch a lot of YouTube, Russian language YouTube, but they speak Ukrainian at home, in the street, in the school, etc. Uh, Russians in Ukraine, they understand almost everything in Ukrainian, but not all of them speak Ukrainian, and not all of them want to learn Ukrainian. Uh, and, and this kind of arrogance towards Ukrainian language, it is also sort of an effect of Soviet times, an effect of Putin's times. Because uh, what we had in the last 20 years, and it was not controlled by the state, that cultural space of Ukraine, of some districts, of some regions, and information space was not Ukrainian. Because, I mean, to have a harm, harmonical uh, country, you need so that all main spaces, legal, financial, cultural, informational, they would coincide with the borders of the country. 
So, I mean, like if you live in Ukraine, you pay with Grivna everywhere in Ukraine. You follow or you execute the laws which are for everybody. But then you have uh, information, you, you read news, you watch news on TV. And in Donbass, they were not watching Ukrainian TV because they were, they were watching Russian TV. And they were getting information about Ukraine from Russian TV. The same was uh, with culture. The same books were published, for example, also even in Russian, in Ukraine and in Russia. Russia was shipping the books to Donbass bookshops uh, and to Crimea. And people were saying, no, no, we trust the books which are published in Moscow, even if it is the same novel that is published here. And uh, what kind of uh, perception of his own country can somebody have if he gets information about his country from abroad, if he is watching uh, television, uh, which is actually uh, very, very uh, dogmatic and uh, purposely, uh, I would say, directed at some messages that will be used later. I mean, one of the most favorite TV channels in Donbass was Nostalgie, Russian TV channel Nostalgie, which broadcasts uh, apart from Soviet films with very, very happy Soviet endings. Uh, uh, it broadcasts uh, talk shows from 1970s and 80s and concerts from that time. And so, I mean, this Nostalgie, Soviet Nostalgie, was just sponsored by Moscow. And nobody cared about this. I mean, they started caring, uh, the government, only when they realized that Uh, part of the population of Ukraine is brainwashed. And the, the politicians in Ukraine were always, I mean, also not very professional and not really statesmen for many years. Because, I mean, they wanted to become rich and they were treating possibility to become an MP or minister just to, to, to get money. And uh, we had one of the best corruptions in the world and I was even invited to European, uh, to the headquarters of Uh, uh, in London of European Reconstruction and Development Bank to give a lecture on history of Ukrainian corruption. Uh, I mean, it was not very difficult to learn this history. But uh, it doesn't mean that uh, other countries around us were not corrupt. And in fact, actually, when I was in, in Brussels in the uh, European Parliament, one of the Belgian politicians told me, if you think that Belgium is not corrupt, Think twice, think twice. <laughs> But, uh, I mean, in the, after Orange Revolution, the corruption went down. So, I mean, already uh, the first thing, which was probably the best thing Viktor Yushchenko did, he dismissed all the traffic policemen and re-employed different ones and told people not to give bribes to, to traffic policemen. And people stopped giving bribes and the policemen stopped taking bribes or demanding bribes. And I remember, I mean, before that, Uh, I had to, to give money to policemen twice or thrice so that I could go uh, drive further. After 2004, I never gave money to police. If I was guilty, I, I said, that, please give me a fine, official fine, I will pay it. And this, I mean, I am 60, but I mean, this is the, the most normal reaction of anybody who is younger than 40. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I know many stories about corruption, but I, I, I know many stories about corruption in the Soviet Union. And my elder brother, Misha, who uh, was a dissident, uh, uh, he was, when he was arrested, he was accused not of a political uh, crime, but he was accused that he broke into ice cream kiosk. <laughs> Because at that time, actually, the 
the police and KGB didn't want to create political prisoners which would be defended by the West. So the political uh, criminals, if you can say, the dissidents were accused of criminal things or they were diagnosed with schizophrenia. So, I mean, my mother was one of the best doctors in Kyiv. Father was military test pilot and then test pilot and then pilot. Uh, and uh, uh, my mother worked for the police uh, hospital and it helped me several times, in fact, when I had to solve some problems. Uh, it was not corruption. In fact, I will tell you later about this. But, <laughs> but then when my brother was uh, arrested, detained, yet not arrested, but detained, and my mother found out about this, she immediately asked her patients from the police uh, whom should she ask what to do with this situation. She was advised to go to somebody. This somebody said which judge will be taking decision on my brother. So she went to see this judge and they were talking about something. I was not present, but then it turned out to be that the judge was collected, collecting uh, old medals and orders and military decorations. And by accident, we had at home a lot of crosses and medals of my grand-grandfather from Tsar's army. So these medals and crosses went to judge. My brother received four years suspended sentence and came back home. And two days later, in the best Soviet Kiev's antique shop, I saw all these crosses and medals for 700 rubles, which was a lot of money at that time. They cost much more now, but I don't know who bought them. So, I mean, this was the, the, the brightest example of uh, Soviet corruption. But uh, in this sense, uh, corruption was uh, not so evil because, I mean, we paid for the freedom of my brother. Was it a crime? Probably now it would be a crime. Uh, but, uh, I mean, there were lots of situations where you, you cannot really 100% be sure uh, what was done correctly or not correctly. And uh, talking about dissidents, uh, I'm thinking that I'm proud now of Soviet dissidents, and I have very little respect uh, for people who are pretending to be protesting. And uh, uh, I, I, had, uh, I, I came here from London. I was uh, flying first to, from Ukraine and driving by car to uh, Slovakia, Kosice Airport, leaving the car, flying to Vienna, then London. And in London, I was traveling uh, on a train from Stansted Airport to Liverpool Street Station. And uh, next to me, uh, there was a lady sitting who noticed that uh, I'm using Cyrillic uh, keyboard on my computer. I was writing something and we started talking and she was uh, originally from Russia, but lives in uh, London many, 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 many years. And she said proudly, Oh, we support you. We support Ukraine very much. In, in Russia, we support. I said, uh, what, what do you do? And she said, oh, yeah, all Russia is now covered with green ribbons. I said, why green? And she said, well, well, I mean, if you uh, mix the yellow paint and the blue paint, you get green. Uh, I, I said, well, I mean, uh, but how people know that this is for Ukraine? Um, isn't it easy just to put a yellow ribbon together with a blue one and uh, attach it to different trees, etc.? And she said, no, no, everybody will, will be arrested at once. And this way, actually, we, we, can, we can put anywhere green ribbons. <laughs> and I thought, uh, what a wonderful protest. But how people know that they, they are uh, for Ukraine? And she said, oh, it's, it's on, Facebook, on Facebook, but Facebook is closed down. I mean, it's, it's, it's not accessible in Russia. 
Twitter is not accessible, Instagram is not accessible, YouTube is not accessible. How people find out? Well, they, they will find out somehow. I mean, the, the level of uh, resistance uh, against, well, practically slavery, against fear, uh, is very low. And uh, people prefer to live uh, very quietly because, I mean, life in Russia was very comfortable, especially in big cities in Moscow. I mean, you have money, you can earn money, you can uh, read nice intellectual books, you can go to the cinema, to festivals. Uh, you will have excellent life if you don't say a word against Putin and against the party Yina Russia or even against the local functionaire because there is a criminal punishment uh, for abusing or swearing at representatives of the state. And uh, I'm just thinking, I mean, 22 years of Putin resulted in physical extermination of opposition because when he came to power, there was oppositional party Yablaka of Yavlinsky, the apple. There were other parties. There were politicians who were uh, against uh, return to authoritarian uh, style. And they all disappeared. I mean, in these 22 years, Ukraine had five different presidents. One of them ended up in Moscow, Yanukovych, because he was really hated uh, in Ukraine. But uh, again, but, but Russians with collective monarchic tradition, they love their Tsar. And if they are unhappy with the Tsar, they kill him and love the next one. <laughs> and they want the next one to be eternal. And actually this monarchic tradition was to uh, see in the Soviet Union because out of six general secretaries of the Communist Party, uh, five were re-elected always until they died. The only one which was dismissed and managed to die as a normal person was Ukrainian Nikita Khrushchev. Uh, probably it is not accidental. But uh, coming uh, now to reasons behind the war and uh, the reasons for uh, Putin being so upset with Ukraine and with the West, uh, I think that the fact was that Putin many times in the last 22 years, in different interviews and statements, said that his biggest drama of his life was the collapse of the Soviet Union. He actually wanted at some point to punish uh, Gorbachev because he was actually very critical of his behavior as the, president, the first president of the Soviet Union, etc. And now when he is uh, practically near the exit from this life, he doesn't care about thousands of Russian soldiers who are sent to be killed uh, in Ukraine. He doesn't care about Russian economy, which is ruined by sanctions. He's not interested in Russian finances, which are actually uh, hit by the inflation again because of the uh, bank sanctions. He wants only one thing, to leave legacy behind. He wants to be remembered as somebody who recreated Soviet Union or new Russian empire. And for that, he needs Ukraine because Ukraine is older than Moscow. Kyiv is 1,540 years old. Christianity came uh, to Slavic lands from uh, today's Constantinople, Istanbul, to Kyiv. And Moscow was created and built by Kyiv's prince, Yuri Dolgoruki, who is buried in Kyiv on the territory of Kiev Peshevsk Monastery. So for 
Putin, after two years in Banka, because he was isolating himself against virus, and now he's isolating himself about against virus and potential assailants. So, so I mean, he had time to create his own theory why he should invade or annex Ukraine. And he was sure that he can annex Ukraine easily, just like he annexed Crimea, without too much blood. But, I mean, he... I, I mean, this is just shows that uh, even if you are clever KGB agent, you can make lots of mistakes. And his mistakes were that he have chosen his inner circle. He created inner circle without rotation. People, the same people were responsible for FSB, for uh, other types of uh, intelligences. And they were giving him the information he wanted to, to hear because they were afraid of him. And apparently now it's clear from Bellingcat that uh, billions of dollars uh, were stolen from the fund from which uh, Russian secret services were supposed to bribe Ukrainian politicians to prepare Ukraine for annexation. So God bless Russian corruption. <laughs> because otherwise it would be much more difficult. We did have pro-Russian political parties. They still exist. We have Russian church, which calls itself Ukrainian Church of Moscow Patriarchy. We have 12 plus thousand churches controlled from Moscow. And these churches, even 20 years ago, they were used as political instruments because the priests were telling uh, the believers for whom to vote. And everybody knew that. And uh, for me, still, the paradox is that Western Ukraine, which is very Ukrainian, where everybody, almost everybody speaks Ukrainian and sings Ukrainian songs, you have a huge number of Russian churches camouflaged as Ukrainian Church of Moscow Patriarchy. And now, as the result of this war, around 100 churches already moved from Moscow Patriarchy to Ukrainian uh, Constantinople Patriarchy, to independent Ukrainian church. And I think after the war, if the war comes to an end and not come, doesn't come to a pause, I think there will be a huge problem with, with this uh, Russian church because you, you cannot tolerate what they did, especially after the war, which killed so many civilians. And most of the civilians which are killed in Mariupol, Sume, Akhtirka, Volnavakha, they are ethnic Russians and Russian speakers. And Putin said that actually the army is coming to defend Russian speakers and ethnic Russians from uh, aggressive uh, Ukrainian nationalists. Uh, I mean, he cannot understand that uh, the nationalistic group like uh, the uh, right sector was created by Russian-speaking nationalists in eastern Ukraine. I mean, there are things that actually Russian analysts cannot grasp. Because, I mean, they are using the Soviet way of analysis. And the Soviet way is just to, to, to frighten, to pay, to, to give uh, uh, something, and to, to, to keep under control. You cannot keep Ukrainians under control. They are uncontrollable. And in this sense, uh, I mean, when, in 2014, the war started in Donbass. Ukraine didn't have prep army. There was like 15,000 people who, who were just living as soldiers, professional soldiers, drinking vodka and doing nothing. And then actually when uh, the war started, several hundred thousand ordinary Ukrainians 
went as volunteers to defend Ukrainian territory. This was the first example of collective resistance in the country where individualism is the main feature. And now third time, I mean, Putin is creating Ukrainian nation. He is shaping the nation because, I mean, he forces Ukrainians to be together and to fight together. If there was no Putin, probably it would take much longer. It would be cheaper. It would be less uh, dangerous and bloody. But practically, I mean, his hate for Ukraine reinforces uh, Ukrainian nation and national identity. And in fact, actually, when you are fighting against the common enemy, nobody cares which language you speak. Because, I mean, it's not only Russian and Ukrainian that are sp spoken in, in Ukraine. We have 300,000 Crime, uh, Crimean Tatars, well, now mostly annexed in Crimea and persecuted by uh, Russian FSB. And there are 12 uh, Crimean Tatar journalists now in prisons. But we have also Hungarians, 250 Hungarians who speak Hungarian, sometimes don't speak neither Russian nor Ukrainian, living in Transcarpathia. We have Romanians. Mariupol was actually Russian-speaking, but uh, the population was half Russian, half Greek, because we have a huge Greek uh, minority. Many of them don't speak Greek, and when they decide to go to live in Greece, then they start learning their historic mother tongue. But we have Bulgarians in Bessarabia and Moldovans and Gagaus who speak their language. And actually, for Ukraine, it will be very important after the war to integrate them all in one uh, society, because very often these uh, minorities live, uh, well, not ignored, but se separately from other groups. And they don't mix up with, uh, like, I mean, the, 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 there is a wonderful uh, Bessarabian Bulgarian village with two names, historic name Shikirlikitai, and the, the map, the name Suvorov, the name of Russian general who went to Paris over Alps. And uh, I wonder why the Ukrainian government didn't change yet the name of Suvorov, but probably it will happen because many uh, names were decommunized. I mean, we had the biggest probably number of Lenin streets uh, in, in, in Ukraine. And now you can find Lenin streets only in Donbass. But I mean, they were renamed and then separatists put the old plagues name, names back. So uh, not to take too much time, but I want to say uh, that uh, I didn't vote for Zelensky. And I think it is a huge mistake of Ukrainians that he was elected. But I thought this, I mean, I mean he is now playing much better role than before. Because, I mean, he was a comedian whom I didn't like. Now he's playing a heroic role, dramatic role. And I like him in this role. So, I mean, we have now two Zelenskys. One Zelensky who is actually helping Ukraine to feel stable and uh, helping to keep spirit up together with the government and the parliament which are working in the wartime. And the previous Zelensky, uh, who was uh, very choosy about whom to punish for crimes, whom not to punish, uh, very populistic, promising things that cannot be delivered. But there is one thing which makes uh, his presence very important now for Ukraine, because he is young. He is much younger than all previous presidents of Ukraine. And in the situation of war, when we are fighting against old Putin, so, I mean, this couple, old Putin and Jan Zelensky, makes this war to look like the war between the past and the future. I hope we will have better politicians than Zelensky after the war.
But now actually Ukraine needs him finally. So uh, uh, I still, I will not vote for him again if there are elections. But somehow Ukraine manages to stabilize itself and to use its, to use, uh, its negative and positive elements uh, to balance the situation and to create some kind of tolerance and stability inside the country. So, I mean, the country can be destroyed only from outside. It cannot be destroyed now from inside because Russian speakers are with Ukrainian speakers for Ukrainian independence and against any kind of authoritarian regime because with Cossacks' mentality, you cannot install one king, one Tsar, or one president who will rule forever. He will be overthrown very easily and very quickly. But, of course... At, at cost, at economical cost, maybe at reputational cost. But, I mean, Ukrainians uh, are used to, to paying too much for every change they are trying uh, to execute. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek. <laughs>